0: I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles, if you have one with, to Acts chapter 17. We're continuing our sermon series entitled, Real Issues and Real Answers. We're going to be digging into kind of the same issue now for a couple of weeks. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. Acts 17, beginning with the 16th verse. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of our own po- your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word But we ask, O Lord, that your word would look at our hearts, that your word would direct our thinking and our actions. We ask that your word would direct all that we are as people. God, we offer this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you like a good buffet? Oh, gee, that's only about 80, not even 80% thing. I got to teach you some things around here. mean there's nothing better than a good buffet is there because you can pick what you want and at the exact same time you can leave behind what you don't want whenever I'm working with a couple for a wedding I'm always hopeful that they will ask my ideas for their reception or if I have any advice for them about their marriage thing I'm always hopeful they'll ask because then I can at least get a little input in and recommend the buffet style rather than the prepared plate Because if there's the prepared plate, we all know what's coming, right? A small four-ounce piece of meat sitting on top of something green that's kind of sliming out the side like this, and then maybe a cookie amount of potato off on the side. See, the beauty of a buffet is you can take as much as you want, when you want, and leave behind what you don't want. The beauty of a buffet is actually found in that it's all about personal choice. And who doesn't like personal choice? We all want personal choice. Decide for ourselves what we want. This morning, as we read Acts chapter 17, we find the Apostle Paul talking in the midst of a buffet, a buffet of different beliefs. We find the Apostle Paul talking to a crowd of people that have a variety of different ideas about different gods and different religious systems. We don't just find the Apostle Paul, though, preaching to that crowd. We find ourselves living in the midst of that crowd. This is not just an issue for the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. This issue is alive and well today. We live in the midst of a buffet of beliefs. People can believe whatever They want. Pick and choose what you want, and I guarantee you there's a book out there on it. Well, the question is with this buffet of beliefs, which one is right? Can everyone just choose their own thing? 50 years ago, if you would have drifted into a town in Midwest America, you would have found for yourself a Roman Catholic church, a couple of Protestant churches and maybe one free church slash non-denominational church. That basically would have been your selection. That would have been your options. Well, today, you visit a local city across the country and in the Midwest, you find a plethora of options. You still have your Roman Catholic option. You have your Protestant options. You've got your free non-denominational options. And then you've got the fastest growing option, the Mormon option. And then you've got close behind it, the Jehovah Witness option option. And then you've got in the bigger cities now coming to smaller cities such as Sioux Falls, you've got different mosques to choose from. My point this morning is not say, oh my goodness, everything's just going to hell. What's wrong? My point is just say, this is reality. And this has been reality around the world forever, that there's been a buffet of beliefs. So how do we live in the midst of this buffet of beliefs? This week and the next week, we want to talk about all of the different religions and ask ourselves the question, is there one religion? And how do we live amongst people who believe differently than us? Whenever we talk about this issue of different beliefs, all sorts of things start coming in our hearts and our minds and around us, all sorts of feelings and thoughts, because it's a tough issue. I mean, the moment that we say our way is the right way, You're labeled as arrogant, and you're basically labeled as an extremist pushed off to the side. So, are we arrogant to say we are right and others are wrong? Not only that, but when we begin talking about different religions, it's going to come up in our mind at some point, well, how do we know if we are right? And then, the most popular one today is, well, Does it really matter what we believe as long as we are sincere with what we are believing in? So so the ticket is sincerity in belief, not the object of your belief. Well, then we run into the issue of how should I treat people who believe differently than myself? And different religious systems have different ideas of how their people should interact with people outside of their religious system. Some religions say, hey, seclude yourself. Other religions say, fight against those who are not in our system. And then other religions have different viewpoints of that. So a variety of questions come to the surface with this issue of different religions, a buffet of beliefs. Well, this morning, we're not going to dig into all of the other religions and start kind of nitpicking different things. I think the first thing we have to do is take a step back and ask ourselves... Do we understand Christianity? You see, when we understand Christianity in the pure form, then we can begin to recognize the true differences with other religious systems and we can begin to talk about those differences. The problem is, we don't understand Christianity in its pure form, that everything just kind of gets melded together and called Christian at the end of the day. It's kind of like, how many of you have a favorite baked good? This is a horrible crowd. Nobody likes buffets, and nobody's got a favorite baked goods. thing. Okay, if you've got a favorite baked good, it's probably made by your spouse, or your mother, or your grandmother, or your father, or your grandfather, right? And you know the taste of this baked good, right? If someone provides to you a different baked good of the same type, are you able to tell the difference? Yes, you're able to tell the difference. Why? Because you've enjoyed the true good in its purest form so many times. This morning, our hope is that from the Apostle Paul, we get to understand the pureness of Christianity, the essence of what it is, so that we can begin to distinguish it from other religious systems and have an honest conversation about the differences. So we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 17 is the Apostle Paul who is kind of, you could say, the leader of the Christian movement. The Apostle Paul is helping planting churches and really building up the church of Jesus Christ everywhere. He's visiting a variety of cities and now he's come to this place called Athens. Athens, you could say, is the cultural capital. This is where the arts are. This is where the academics are. This is where the who's who is located you could say it's kind of like New York or Los Angeles. If you go there, you kind of got a little bit of everything. It's the in place to be. And not only is it the in place to be, but it's the place where ideas are wanted and ideas are promoted. That's why you see in Acts 17, it says in verse 21 that the people there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, this was the place where they talked about ideas. This is the place where they accepted multiple different religious systems. And so when the Apostle Paul was here, he saw a bunch of different objects of worship, maybe what we would call idols, things built up to other gods. He says, hey, I saw all this stuff. So it's a place where there is a buffet of beliefs. But then the Apostle Paul shows up and it's crazy that he wasn't kicked out of town faster. Because he basically shows up and says, wow, you've got a big buffet here. But let me tell you what, there's really only one item that's acceptable on the buffet. And Then he goes in to explain what this one item, this one belief that is acceptable on it. So let's look together in Acts chapter 17. We're going to get the basis of Christianity. What is, a, what is Christianity? If you look at me at verse 24, we get right here to the beginning of Paul's sermon. Notice how short the sermon is, too. Verse 24: The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, Hey, you've got all of these objects of worship. But let me tell you about the true creator. You see, the basis of Christianity is that there is a creator who has given life to all things. This is at the foundation of Christianity that we believe that there is a, for lack of a better term, higher power who has put creation into order and is in charge and gives life when he chooses to give life. So we believe that there is a creator who has given life to all things. And the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, (laughs) there is someone outside of us that has given us life. And this is important to distinguish that the Apostle Paul starts here. So he doesn't start with the inner person. He doesn't go to the crowd and say, hey, you've got a lot of good in you. There's a spark inside of you that can be built up to be a god or a goddess. No, the Apostle Paul turns their attention to someone something objective outside of themselves, and says, "Let me tell you about this creator who best framed as the God of Israel. The God of Israel is this creator who has given everything life, anywhere and everywhere. This God is responsible for life." So therefore, if it's fundamental to Christianity, That we believe that there is a creator who has given life that's outside of ourselves. Therefore, there is a God who's not created by us. Therefore, cannot be defined by us. If if the Apostle Paul is true, true here in what he's saying, then there is someone outside of us that we can't define and we can't tell what to do. The most popular phrase right now alongside with sincerity of belief is this. I can't possibly believe in a God like that. So basically what a person is saying there is, I can only believe in a God who will fit in my box of understanding. In other words, I can only believe in a God who I will agree with. Well, in very simple terms, what we are saying is this. I can only believe in a God who I have some control of. In other words, a God who's no God at all because I've created them. You see, if there is a creator, we can't define the creator. We can't just say, well, that's unfair because they're outside of us. They didn't ask us. They're objective. The basis for Christianity is there is a creator who has given life to all things and we cannot define that creator. And notice the Apostle Paul even says that. He kind of begins to hint at that in verse 29. He says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, you can't dictate what God is like. God's outside of us. So at the heart of Christianity is we believe there is a creator who's ruler of all. Now, most religious systems would agree with us on this point. That there is a God who is the creator, and we would disagree on creation and all of that stuff, but let's set all that aside for a moment. There's There's a God outside of us who created and who is in charge. Now comes the distinguishing difference between Christianity and all other religious systems. The Apostle Paul now says, This creator God, who gives life to all mankind, has given all authority to one man, Jesus so in other words, this creator has given all authority to Jesus. Therefore, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the essence of Christianity. If you look with me in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He's right at the end of his message and the Apostle Paul says, Because he has fixed, God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this time he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, God has placed all authority in this one person, Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up with me to John chapter 5. Flip back to John chapter 5, if you would. I'm going to summarize a story here and then just look at a couple of key verses in it. John chapter 5. We find a situation where Jesus is interacting with someone who's um, basically been paralyzed their whole life. About 38 years. So Jesus is interacting with someone who's been paralyzed and it's the Sabbath. And Jesus comes up to the person and says, do you want to be healed? And, and the person says, well, I've got no one to put me in the, in the pool. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And this person is healed. 38 years later, walks. I mean, this, is, this stuff is crazy. Gets up and walks. Well, the religious leaders are not too happy about the situation. And there's actually, I think, a little bit of humor here. The religious leaders go up to this man who hasn't walked for 38 years and says, "Um, do you know what day it is? Should you have really picked up your mat on this day? I mean, really? After 38 years, can you imagine someone hearing the command, get up and walk and saying, I'm going to wait a day on that. So the religious leaders are not happy because Jesus is is stepping on the This issue of the Sabbath. That's how serious they take the Sabbath. Is they want this guy to wait another day. But Jesus still heals on the Sabbath. What Jesus is basically proclaiming in this is this: He is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was created for Jesus, so Jesus can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath. He's making a declaration here that he has the full authority of God the Father who instituted the Sabbath. So if you look with me in John chapter 5, go down to verse 18. We get a clear explanation of why people hated Jesus. It says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is the central claim of Jesus, that Jesus is saying, hey, I am equal with God the Father and I have full authority, just like God the Father has. Okay, the religious leaders do not like that. And that's ultimately why they want him killed, because he's making these radical claims. In one instance, Jesus forgives somebody of sin and the religious leaders say, well, what gives you the right to forgive sins? That is God alone. Again, Jesus is claiming to have full authority, to be in complete unity with his heavenly Father. He is declaring to be divine. This is the central message of Christianity, the life of Jesus Christ, that he is fully divine, the death of Jesus Christ, that God would die on our behalf, and then that which is the proof of it all, the resurrection of Jesus. We get so used in the church talking about the resurrection right? We hear about it, we talk about it one Sunday a year, maybe, and rarely, rarely does the resurrection even get mentioned at a funeral. So the central event in Christianity, it gets ignored by what? The very people who are supposed to be carrying on the message. The resurrection, we've lost the lightning of it. Think about this for a second. When you go to a funeral, what do you expect? Bury someone. That's not, I mean, I'm not making light of it, but right, you expect someone that's in the box to stay in the box. Okay, Jesus is killed, put in a tomb, and then he rises three days later and, get it, stays alive. This is absurd. This is crazy talk that someone would die and come back to life and stay alive. Well, this is the central event right here that affirms the identity of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection did not happen, man, we are a bunch of fools because we're talking about a dead man that can't do anything for any of our problems. Basically, Jesus is then just a crutch in our minds. But the resurrection is the affirmation that Jesus has the full authority of God the Father. This is the central difference between Christianity and any other religion, that we have a man who's declared to have full authority, and then this man dies and comes back to life and stays alive. No other religions are making this proclamation. This is it right here, that God has given full authority to Jesus. When you define Christianity, Jesus needs to be at the center of that definition. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to have Jesus as your king. Very simple. To be a Christian is to say, Jesus, you are my king. I'm going to seek your kingdom. Because this is the distinguishing difference of Christianity, that there is one person whom full authority has been given to. So for a moment, let's think that we were actually listening to the Apostle Paul preach that we were there when he gave that sermon and we, hear, we heard him say, hey, there is a creator of the universe and this creator has now given all authority to Jesus and now it's time to return to this person, Jesus. If we were listening to that sermon, what would be the implication in our lives? Or in other words, what would be the implication in our lives today? There's three different implications for us. The first is maybe a simple one, but a profound one. I am a creature. I mean, Part of the truth of Christianity is this, we are not our own gods. And when I say that I am a creature, I'm also saying something else. I'm saying that there is a creator. Therefore, if I'm a creature, there is a creator who I have to respond to. There is a creator who I have to basically speak with and get direction from. There's a big difference between being a creature and a creator. A creature is dependent upon the creator. What it means to be a Christian is to live as a creature. This is good news actually at the exact same time because this means you no longer have to try to be God because you're not God. But we are creatures called to live in dependence upon our creator. Are you living like a creature? Are you living as your own creator? Are you trying to define the creator? Are you allowing the creator to reveal himself to you? not that we're just creatures, but then the second implication is that I find meaning and life from God. If you look here in Acts, look back at Acts chapter 17 in the Apostle Paul's sermon, he kind of lays out for them that all of life comes from God. And then he quotes some of their own poets by saying, we are his offspring. What the Apostle Paul is saying there by quoting and saying, hey, true life only comes from God. That you cannot have meaning or purpose apart from God. Everyone here this morning, plus everyone in the city of Sioux Falls, is searching for meaning and purpose. Everybody wants to have a meaning in life and a purpose for life. The Apostle Paul is saying, You can't have meaning and purpose outside of God. Because if you're outside of God, you're not living how you were created to live. Therefore, you're trying to create something different than what was intended to be. And so. Meaning and purpose comes from God. If you want meaning this morning and purpose in your life, it's about going back to God. It's about putting yourself back as God's creation and saying, God, you're the creator. What do you want from your creation? Do you think that thousands, if not millions, of books called The Purpose-Driven Life sold because it was some pastor in California that wears Hawaiian shirts that wrote it? No. The reason that that book sold so many copies and just all over the whole world, is that because people are searching. People said, oh, yeah, I would like a purpose life. I'd like to have something that has meaning. Well, the Apostle Paul is declaring today that the only place where we find meaning is from God himself, living as God's creature. So I am a creature. I find meaning in life from God. And then finally, the final implication is very simple. Jesus is king. And this is the central part of Christianity, that God has vested all authority in his son, Jesus the Christ. This morning, it's not a matter of if Jesus is king over the universe. He is whether we like it or not. The question is, is he king over our own lives? For someone to be king, they have to have a position of authority. They have to have some say, some sway in your life. Does Jesus have any sway in your life today? He wants to. Isn't that amazing? The one who has complete sway over the whole universe wants to have sway in your individual life today. The one who has full authority and one day will give a response to wants to have full authority in our hearts and our minds today. The essence of Christianity is that Jesus has been given full authority. And this Jesus has died on our behalf and has risen from the grave. This morning as we celebrate communion, it's so appropriate as we talk about different religions because this right here is the distinguishing mark. That Jesus with full authority would establish a covenant with us by his own blood. How dare we say there's another pathway to God when God has created a pathway to himself through his very own blood. You want to trample on the blood of Jesus Christ? Offer a different pathway to the creator of the universe. But the creator of the universe has done this, has given full authority to his son Jesus the Christ, has asked his son to shed his blood on our behalf, has given us the forgiveness of sins, and then has conquered the grave through the resurrection of Jesus. This morning, will we live out the implications? Will we be creatures? Or will we be our own creators? Will we find our meaning in God alone? Will Jesus be our king? For most people, religion is very simple. Religion is a means to an end. Very simply put, religion is a crutch. At the end of the day, that's what religion is. It's a crutch. It's enabling us to do something that we cannot do for ourselves. Most religion works this way. I need something, and I need something to be able to help me get there, so I'm going to use it to help me get to that point. Christianity is completely different. Christianity is not a means to an end. Christianity is not a crutch for ourselves, but rather Christianity is God coming to us rather than us trying to use God to get something else. Christianity is God coming to us and saying, hey, orient your whole life around my kingdom and my ways. Christianity is Jesus being king in our lives. If you want boring and if you want guilt, choose religion. It's got guilt and boring written all over it. But if you want peace and everlasting joy, forget the buffet of beliefs and look to the belief that's been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in that person where we find the forgiveness of our wrongdoings and the promise of life everlasting. I invite you this morning, in the midst of a buffet of beliefs, to stand and say, Jesus, I trust in you alone, for you are my king. Jesus, you are the king. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks today that you have made yourself known to us. God, we acknowledge that we cannot get to you on our own. We acknowledge that oftentimes we have tried to build systems that accomplish what only you can accomplish. God, today I ask, that you would humble our hearts. God, today I ask that you would renew us, renew our faith. I pray for anyone this morning that has not yet professed faith. God, I ask that you would give them that gift. Give them the gift of faith to say, I trust in Jesus. God, thank you for being our king. Thank you for being our ruler. Thank you for dying on our behalf. Thank you for conquering the grave. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we prepare to sing our last song, I want to say one final word because there's always a danger in this type of message. That's the danger of pride, right? Oh, we've got it right. Everybody else has got it wrong. Let me just remind us for a second of the blessing that we've been given. 95% of us, if not 99% of us, if not 100% of us, were born into this thing called Christianity. God has extreme mercy upon you that you were born into truth. There are millions all around the world that have not been born into truth. That doesn't mean there's no truth, it just means they have not received that mercy, that blessing, whatever you want to call it. So we need to leave here with great humility today. Not that we've chosen rightly, but that we've been given grace and mercy by the creator of the universe, we've been given the opportunity to follow the true king. Let's leave here as humble Christians, recognizing that it's not us that have chosen, but God chose us and now gives us the opportunity to live as his children.